I think we must be getting close now. Close to a time when we all realise that we have fallen for one of the most elaborate tricks ever played on us. It is Christopher Columbus Day in just under a week, and for that reason, we need to be ready. To throw up our hands and say, wow, I can't believe I fell for that. No matter what you think you know about Columbus, or what you think he might have done, I think you're probably wrong. In fact, this thing is a ticking time bomb, and when it goes off, make sure that you're on the right side of the truth. Before you tear down another statue or decide to put one up, just stop and ask yourself, what do I actually know about Christopher Columbus? What do I actually know for sure? Because the stories you've been told about Columbus, do they really make any sense? Was he really the first person to sail across the Atlantic? Did he enslave Native Americans? Did he even set foot on mainland America? These are the questions that I wanted answers to a few months ago when I read a book entitled Columbus, The Untold Story. But when I finished the book, these questions no longer mattered to me. In fact, I'd opened a whole new can of worms. I wasn't even sure if Columbus existed anymore. And I certainly didn't believe the absurd story that you'll read in all the history books, Wikipedia page, that he started life as a peasant weaver from Genoa, Italy. When I finished reading this book, I thought, if all this is true, then we need to rewrite the history books and seriously rethink the way we look at the man, Christopher Columbus. And not in the ways you might think. Well, Columbus and those stories published in English in 2016. So I got in touch with the author. But my first book, uh, The Columbus Mystery Reveal, was published in Portugal in 2006. Manuel Rosa has spent three decades now investigating the life of Christopher Columbus in meticulous detail. Four different books in Portuguese. I have uh, Columbus and the Untold Story in English. I have uh, two Polish language books, one in Lithuania and one... Despite being one of the most knowledgeable people in the world on the topic of Christopher Columbus's life, Manuel Rosa's account of the Columbus story is largely dismissed by the academic and historic community. But I think it's just a matter of time. Do you think we're anywhere near a turning point with Christopher Columbus? Are we on the verge of a, a mass realization that something that we all thought was true is in fact a, a big fat lie? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of people questioning the accepted tale, let's put it that way, the tale of, uh, of the Italian Colombo. Uh, and what we've done is we've actually contested everything with documentation and with um, Columbus's own writing. It's impossible to adjust the two lives, the life of the navigator who was known as Cristobal Colón and not Columbus or Colombo, that's a, that's a fabricated name, and the life of the wool weaver guy who was Colombo in Italy. For the last hundred years, Historians have succeeded in making people believe that two people were one by a lot of smoke and mirrors. So basically, they've denied, they had to deny, well, not everything, but they had to deny about 90% of what Columbus wrote about himself and what his son and, and Friar Las Casas wrote about Columbus. These are, this is the documentation in Spain. They had to deny 
all of those writings in order to fit the peasant Italian guy into the, into the life of the navigator. 30 years now, next year, it will be 30 years that I've invest, been investigating Columbus. Uh, my thesis right now is Cristoforo Colombo versus Cristobal Colón. The Italian peasant from Genoa was not the navigator from Iberia. And that's, um, after this thesis is published, it'll be very difficult for anyone to keep asserting that the guy, Cristobal Colón, who sailed in 1492, was in fact the wool weaver guy, Colombo, from Genoa, Italy. It's impossible. I'm Charlie Mannix-Beale, and welcome back to the Phoenicians Before Columbus podcast, my podcast about the unsung heroes of maritime history, the Phoenicians. But so far, we've talked a lot about the unsung heroes, the Phoenicians, and actually not very much about Christopher Columbus, who, hero or villain, does get a lot of attention. But probably about 90% of what you'll read about Christopher Columbus, it makes no sense, no sense at all. What Manuel Rosa says in his books and in the next two episodes of this podcast, I believe is soon going to be the accepted historical narrative. So buckle up and prepare to be the biggest know-it-all in the room this Columbus Day. Can you just tell the story, the commonly accepted story of of Christopher Columbus? Because... I think it's a useful starting point to kind of make sure we're on the same page. And the more, the more I hear it, the more I read it, the more hilarious it sounds as well. <laughs> it's, you know, it's like a cartoon, right? It's like a, it's like a, a Walt, I, I, I actually say this in my, my book that, you know, it's like a Walt Disney film where the peasant falls in love with the princess and end up getting married in the end. You know, Aladdin, all these different Walt Disney uh, movies are based on that. The poor guy or the poor girl who marries, marries into royalty. To go back to the to the tale, basically we were told that uh, this wool weaver, this peasant uh, boy, Cristoforo Colombo from Italy, from Genoa, who was born into a family of wool weavers. His father was a wool weaver. His grandfather was a wool weaver. His two brothers were wool weavers. And um, at some time, when he was around 25 years old, arrived in Portugal from a shipwreck. So he had enlisted uh, at, a, at a later time as a, a deckhand on the ships. He was involved in a sea battle against some pirates. And the ship sank and he um, swam ashore about eight miles to the shores of Portugal. This is how he arrives in Portugal for the first time in August of 1476. So we have a, uh, we have a peasant who swam ashore naked without a penny to his name in August 1476 in a foreign kingdom. In January 1479, the navigator married Philippa Muniz, a very noble lady in Portugal, so noble that she was a cousin to three countesses, one Marquesa, cousin to the Lord Chamberlain of the King, cousin to the Captain of the Guards of the King, sister-in-law to one of the royal guards of the king, daughter of a captain of an island, sister of a captain, and, and aunt of another captain. 
And they want us to believe that this peasant guy who arrived in Portugal in August 1476, naked, without a penny, without his parents having any wealth back in Italy, two years later was married to this lady. And, and this is impossible, never would have happened. And this is how I first started to unravel the story, basically, when I realized that when I learned about the, the, the marriage, I knew that history was false. It would have been impossible for a peasant to marry into nobility in those days without the peasant have been um, made noble by some, by some decree of the, of the court. There's no such decree in Portugal for Columbus to, to be able to have uh, to have been made for the peasant will leave it to have been able to marry this noble lady. Um, not only that, there is no documentation at all about Colombo or Columbus in Portugal. It doesn't exist. Columbus does not exist in Portugal, and there's a reason for that. However, uh, in order to justify the peasant marrying this lady, the historians had to invent that he was knighted. They had to invent that when he came to Portugal, he went to school and learned how to speak Portuguese and Spanish and learned to and study mathematics, algebra, geometry, geography, astronomy, navigation, and secret ciphers that he used to write uh, uh, letters to his brother, uh, ciphered letters when he was being attacked in Santo Domingo. So this guy arrives in Portugal, 25 years old, penniless and naked, and two years later, he's fluent in Portuguese, Spanish, cartography, geography, astronomy, navigation, mathematics, and does not know a word of Italian. None of his letters are in Italian. His two brothers, who are supposedly also Italian, never wrote any letters in Italian either. When they wrote between themselves, they wrote in Spanish letters with Portuguese words mixed in. So the current tale is that three noble, uh, three adult wool weavers came to Spain and Portugal at an adult age, you know, 25 or over, over 20, all of them. And none of them knew how to speak Italian. They wrote between themselves in Spanish with Portuguese words mixed in. And they were all so well instructed in school that they, were, they, they had uh, the education of princes and high nobles. And this is where the whole story falls apart. Because this is a time as well when education systems were nothing like what they are today. It was, you know, school wasn't uh, something that any, any old person could just go to, especially not if you're an Italian bull weaver. Well, there were no public schools. You know, there were some, you know, there were some convents that you could put school in convents and things like that. Most uh, nobles got private tutoring. You know, they, they would hire a tutor to come, uh, you know, live with the children and raise them and teach them. Um, However, uh, if you're 25 years old and you arrive from a shipwreck in a new country without a dime to your name and naked, because you know you wouldn't have brought anything when you swim in the shore eight miles, you know you're not going to bring anything. You're probably not going to keep your clothes on because they drag you down. So you arrive at 25 years old in a foreign country, naked and penniless. The last thing you would do is say, "I'm going to go to school," when there were no public schools to begin with. Uh, at 25 years old. That is just ridiculous. But this is the story that they've fed us for over 100 years now. And it's a, it's a classic rags to riches story, which maybe is why it captured everyone's hearts. 
But then it gets more ridiculous, of course, because Columbus uh, goes on to discover the new world. If we, if you, would you mind summarizing that part quickly as well? And then, then I think we need to understand the political situation. Well, so, yeah, so the story tells us that, you know, so he got to Portugal, you know, he, he obviously uh, would have had to go do a lot of studying, you know, spent a lot of time studying before he get fluent, you know, in the current uh, fairy tale. And then he realized that because the world is round, he could get to India by sailing west and he'd end up in India on the east. And so he supposedly made that pitch to the king of Portugal. And the king of Portugal told him, you know, you're crazy. You're just, that's a stupid idea. Uh, don't bother us with that. And so um, he went to Spain and, and pitched that to the Spanish kings. The Spanish kings basically said the same thing. You're crazy. It's a stupid idea. Don't bother us with that. But instead of going on to another kingdom, he just stayed in Spain and kept pitching it to them and pitching it to them for seven years, uh, harassing them to sponsor him on this voyage until he finally uh, got the, um, the okay to, to go on the voyage. Um, at that point, he set sail, you know, obviously discovers the new world and goes back and tells everyone he was in India. And um, the rest is history, as we say. And of course, he went to his, to his deathbed claiming that he uh, discovered India. And, and that's, that's true in both senses. But, but this leads us to the kind of... Yes, he did go to his deathbed claiming he had, been, he had reached India, yes. Which is part of the confusion, I guess, because you make the compelling case that he was, in fact, a double agent. He, he was exactly. swindling the Spanish. Yeah. So he claimed he was in India, but he knew he was not. The whole idea was to make the Spanish believe the Americas was India. And, and once he did that, which was, you know, really his mission was over. When he returned to Europe in March of 1493, having made the first voyage and convincing the Spanish that he was in India, his mission as secret agent was over. You know, it was successful. He was done. But his life was not over. So he had to, he had to um, use... Uh, everything to his advantage in order to better himself, his, his, his uh, descendants, and to um, leave a legacy. So he could not go back and suddenly say, oh, by the way, it's not India, you know, it's, it's just a completely different place. So he had to keep uh, insisting that it was India, and he had to do that to protect, you know, his, his um, descendants' position in Spain, because if they if he just came right out and told them that the, it was a ruse all along, then his children would not be, uh, would probably be deposed of all their rights and their titles. So he had to continue uh, convincing them that he believed that this was India. And uh, he, you know, he succeeded in that as well. Hey, if you're enjoying this, it would be amazing if you could make a donation towards the Phoenicians Before Columbus podcast to support me in producing this podcast. There's a PayPal link in the description, which you can follow. And it's super easy to make either a one-off gift or an ongoing contribution. Thanks. And, and these are, I guess, the two major deceptions. Firstly, that he was a peasant from Genoa. And then second, that he believed that he discovered India. But to really understand the kind of absurdity of this and indeed the, the motivation behind it, we do need to talk about the political situation at the time. Uh, between Portugal and Spain. It does get complicated, doesn't it? Very complicated. You know, uh, politics politics and political factions and um, 
you know, and, and ruses have been part of humanity since the beginning of time. So, um, you know, alliances and who you're going to align yourself with, who you're going to fight against. We kind of see that in the U.S. today with the political situation we have, uh, where we know uh, certain things are absolute lies, but yet people align themselves with that lie and they will fight the truth to the dead uh, almost. So what we have in, in Portugal, you know, is that Portugal was uh, the initial Portugal county was just a small section up in the north of Portugal where Porto is. Uh, when Portugal declared independence from Castile, which was today part of Spain, um, the, the first king received independence from his grandfather, who was the king of Spain. So Portugal became independent. However, all successful, uh, successive kings of Spain kept trying to take back Portugal, you know, and that was a battle that lasted for about 400 years. Uh, there was ongoing battles between Spain trying to retake Portugal back and Portugal trying to keep its independence. Um, what this brings us to is uh, 1476. 1476 is, um, uh, 1474 is when the king of Spain died, leaving a 13-year-old daughter as, as an heir to the throne. But uh, Queen Isabel, the lady we know as Queen Isabel today, which was princess, who was not supposed to be queen, proclaimed herself queen and tried to steal the crown from her niece. And so there was a civil war uh, that took place uh, that lasted for about four years. And that civil war uh, was uh, the, the Spanish faction that was loyal to Isabel against the Spanish faction that was loyal to the 13-year-old uh, heir to the throne who was being protected by Portugal. So Portugal and the loyalists fought against Isabel and the rebels. And that, that civil war went on, like I said, for about four years. And um, at, in the end, Portugal decided to let Isabel be queen steal, to steal the crown if she would sign a treaty where the Spanish were forbidden to sail south of the Canary Islands. And this was because Portugal had been for over a hundred years secretly going out on voyages of discovery into, you know, the new world, into Canada and to the Canaries and then along the coast of Africa. And they did not want interference from any other um, European kingdom. And because Spain was the Castile was the only enemy of Portugal, Portugal had no other European kingdoms that were enemies of Portugal. Portugal never fought any war with any other European kingdom, uh, you know, up to this time, 1480. And so Spain, Castile was its only enemy. And Portugal signed, forced Isabel to sign this treaty that the Spanish could not sail south of the Canaries, and she could then be queen of Castile. And so that's where things were in 1480. Isabel was allowed to be queen. The, the real queen, the 13-year-old uh, niece of Isabel, was brought to safety in Portugal. Um, the Spanish were forbidden to sail south of the Canaries. And then King John II um, takes the throne in 1481. Well, in 1481, uh, John was very, uh, uh, let's put it this way, he, when he took the throne, most of his uh, lands were owned by the, the high nobles. So his father had given away a lot of territory and power to the high nobles. And John tried to take all that power back. So basically, he tried to be king of his kingdom. 
without just being, um, you know, a stand-in for the nobles. And a lot of the nobles got angry at him, and so they started an alliance with Isabella in Castile to kill him. And the reason they wanted to kill him, obviously, was to maintain power. And what they were given to Isabel was uh, they were offered to nullify the treaty that forbade her citizens, her subjects, sailing south of the Canaries. So this was 1483, 1484. Uh, the, the, Isabel would help the nobles kill King John II. Uh, in return, the, the new king would nullify the treaty and would allow Spain to sail all these secret territories that the Portuguese had been um, visiting for a hundred years. And it's, um, worth, it's just worth mentioning as well, Portugal was you know, a maritime superpower at the time, wasn't it? I mean, they are... The only uh, maritime superpower. Sure, because in effect, they are the sort of, in a, in a corner of Europe, separated from everyone else, although they're not hostile towards anyone else. They are, you know, as they are today, in a sort of um, isolated corner, only able to really look out towards the Atlantic. Exactly. So the, the Portugal's expansion was the sea. They couldn't go, you know, while all the other European kingdoms, you know, France and England are fighting each other for, you know, a thousand years. Spain and Aragon and, and Navarra and, and, you know, these other kingdoms, France even, are fighting themselves for this European territory. Italy, the, the Italian states are fighting each other and, and you know, uh, and, and the German states. So there was a lot of infighting in Europe. Portugal was not involved in any of that. They basically were out scouting the seas for, for new lands and, new, and knowledge. And they had built a, a pretty successful navy. They were the first you know, nation to put large cannons on ships, the first nation to build a real you know, a flotilla. Uh, you know, uh, John II had built a, um, a ship that was basically uh, three logs, you know, it's so thick that the wood was a, uh, you know, a log, not just a board, and it was loaded with cannons and um, called the St. Saint Christopher, St. Cristobal. And so it, it was really uh, geared towards the sea. Uh, Spain did not have that. Sure, Spain had, you know, they had their own armies and their own, their own ships and navies, but they were not focused on the sea. They were focused in, in, in the end fighting between those territories. Um, so when, when this uh, treason takes place with Isabel helping the nobles to kill John II, and when John finds out about this, uh, the, the nobles run away to Spain and they go hide in her court, the ones that John did not kill, the ones that he caught, he, he, he assassinated. Two of the nobles that were involved in this treason, actually the guy who started the treason, was the constable of the kingdom, the guy who was supposed to run the army, you know, the, the, the guy in charge of the armies, John of Braganza. John of Braganza was the Marquis of Montmore and he was married to a cousin of Columbus's wife. The other guy was the Count of Penamacor. The Count of Penamacor was Lopo de Albuquerque. He was the, uh, the, the chamberman, chamberman, I guess is what it is, chamberlain, for, the, for John's father, the royal falconer, and the captain of the guards of John's father, Alphonse V. He was also married to a cousin of Columbus' wife. So we have two cousins of Columbus who were involved at, the, at this treason, one that initiated the treason, the other one who was involved in it. And they both, both run away to Spain at the same time that Columbus also runs away to Spain. And so while the other two were, were real traitors, traitors of King John II, 
the Lambos was an actual infiltrated double agent. Just to backtrack a little bit, when I was traveling around Spain um, last year, and I only realized recently that in the UK, we call the discoverer of the new world, Christopher Columbus. But, but in Spain, it's Colón. In Italy, it's Colombo. What, what was his real name? Um, and we don't know. why? Because uh, his name in Spain, the name he was using in Spain, Cristobal Colón, okay? which is the name he used in, you know, in the 1400s, and the name that every Spanish-speaking nation uses today. His name was Cristobal Colón. That was an assumed identity. That was 007. Cristobal Colón is 007. We don't know. You know, we know 007 is James Bond. We don't know what the real name of Cristobal Colón is. Uh, so it is his Cristobal Colón was his secret agent identity. And his, his, um, it was also his, uh, his um, uh, it described his voyage, it was his motto. Gustavo Colon was his name and his motto. His motto is Christ going member, Gustavo Colon. And so uh, he assumed that identity for himself to hide, that, hide his real lineage from the public, not from the courts, because Spain and Portugal knew his real identity, but the public at large could not know his real identity. And that's, that's another part of this conspiracy. That's the last part I have yet to solve, which I hope to do with DNA. But um, that it was so important to both Portugal and Spain that the two courts agreed to hide his real identity, never mention what his nationality was, never mentioned who his parents were, and never mentioned what his real name was. And so when exactly in Columbus's life did the, the, the wool weaver peasant um, idea come about? Was it, was, it in, was it during Columbus's life? I can tell you where the, the name Columbus first showed up. So when he returned from the New, from the new World, he wrote out a, a, the first ever international press release, which is called The First Letter of Columbus. He wrote this letter to a friend of his who took it to a printer. The printer printed the letter in Barcelona, in Catalan, and he wrote down the name as Cologne, but instead of using an N, so let me just explain where the name came from. So we use our colon, semicolon, in English, you know, the dots, the dot and comma, uh, we call colon and semicolon. This name comes from the Greek, which one of the translations means member. And so the, the discoverer intentionally took this name Colin for himself because it meant member. And because Christobel, Christobel meaning Christ uh, ferrying, right, or carrying. Um, so he took the name Christobel for himself. It's not his real name. His son says this, and Friar Las Casas actually says the same thing, that he invented the first name and he invented the last name because it described what he was about to do. Christ ferrying members. He was taking Christ across the waters, as St. Christopher did. But he chose the name Colon, because in Greek it means member, 
and also because it's the ancient um, it's the ancient form of his uh, noble lineage from a Roman general. So he kind of used it to have to take to have three things that came together. His son said, "By by divine providence, you know, he came up with his name, which fits perfectly because it described what he's about to do, taking Christ across the waters." It um, it uh, uh, included a reference to his uh, ancestor, a Roman general from the ancestor, uh, the first person to have known the, the name Coluna, which is column. Uh, and because it meant member, it also described that he was a member of Christ. So it was a perfect name. It was a genius uh, thought, let's put it that way. And so... Uh, in 1493, when this letter is printed in Barcelona, uh, a guy in Barcelona, the, the letter is actually kept, uh, the New York Public Library has an original copy by, printed by Poza. You can search up. Um, and it, uh, in the end, Pedro Poza said, wrote a little note that said, this letter was sent by Colón. But instead of using the N as we use in colon, he used an M as the last letter. And Cologne in Catalan means pigeon, while uh, the discoverer's name meant member. Two weeks later, this letter is translated in, in Rome into Latin. And because Cologne in, uh, in Catalan is pigeon, Colombo in Italian is pigeon, and Columbus in Latin is pigeon. So they translated the Cologne from Catalan, pigeon, into the Latin pigeon, which is Columbus, which is not the same as Colon, the name he actually chose for himself. So in, in April 1493, this letter is printed in Rome with the wrong name, Columbus, and then that letter is uh, uh, reprinted in, in the Netherlands, in Paris, in, uh, I forget now how many, how many different major cities in Europe it was printed with Columbus as the name. And so, as you know, when something gets out into the, into the public, into the press, it's very difficult to correct. And Columbus's name is the probably the longest standing false, you know, fake news that we know because the name became, went from Colón to Columbus in 1493 and we have not been able to fix it for 500 years. You guys in England call him Columbus. In Italy, they call him Colombo. In French, they call him Colomb. In, uh, in uh, Poland, they call him uh, Colomb. And in Portugal, we call him Colombo. Those are all pigeon. Those are all names for pigeon. Uh, the name was not pigeon. The name was member. But of course, this, this suited uh, a secret agent perfectly, having all these uh, different versions of his name. Well, yes. I think that once they started to, once the name became really corrupted in the, in the press, uh, it was it actually it was like a divine intervention because now he was he was one step even further from the truth. So while Cologne was used to 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 mean member and Christ going member and the um, I mean Christ faring uh, member and then uh, to be a um, a clue to his ancestor from the Roman uh, Roman general. Now it is just completely disconnected. Colombo has nothing to do with the navigator. It is just a completely um, off, not even an offshoot, it's just completely separate. 
So now when they start looking for Colombo, they are so far away from, from the real discoverer that they will never find him. And um, so other people started saying that he was from Genoa and other people that he was from Milan and some people from uh, Liguria, which is you know, part of Genoa, uh, is the province where Genoa is, was the capital of. And so what we have suddenly is people who are outside of the secret propagating false information, some probably all of them unknowingly, which the historians used to try to piece the story together. But it was a false lead. And, and so the Columbo, the, the Italian idea of Columbus as, as, a, as, a, as a Genoese weaver, did this come about after Columbus had, had died? And was it a kind of, you mentioned how in the book, there was a lot of opportunists trying to cash in on um, the, the Columbus estate or the, the Cologne estate. Yeah, so there was, that, that was in the 1580s when, when, um, when the, the lawsuit for Columbus' inheritance, Cologne's inheritance took place in Spain. Um, it's a little gray area because, uh, you know, they're calling him Genoese in, um, in Spain already before that. And there is a rumor, well, there is a, uh, uh, an investigation by when Columbus was arrested in 1500 in the, in the New World and sent back in chains. There is, a, um, uh, there is the investigation by Bovadilla who arrested him where he says that uh, they cut off some lady's tongue because she had said out loud that they were, that they were weavers. And I'm not sure that that is a... Um, that there's, that's the actual writing from the original, or if it's a copy, you know, made later on. Uh, and they tried to com- convince uh, us that uh, this proves that he was the weaver because he cut off the lady's tongue because she called him a weaver. Well, if he was a high nobleman and they, they insulted him by calling him a weaver, then there would also be a reason to cut off their tongue. Although I don't know that there were women uh, in the new colony at that time from Spain, that's also another gray area. But that's regardless of the, uh, of the facts, because even if he said that he was a Colombo weaver from Genoa, okay, even if he, which he never did, there's none of that written anywhere by him, anywhere. Even if he had said, I am a peasant weaver from Genoa, okay, that would only serve to hide the fact that he was a nobleman, you know, and, and and he couldn't say who his uh, real identity was. And, and I know your investigation into Columbus was very thorough, but, but there is one piece of evidence that really does suggest that Columbus was of Genoese origin, and, and that's the, the final will of, I think, 1498. 1498. And it says on the document, you know, being I born in Genoa. Um, and I know for many historians, this has been a decisive source, which contradicts your theory. What, what exactly. did you make of Columbus's will? I mean, I know you went to Seville to... So look at it closely. Yeah. So what happens is, you know, I spent 10 years of my life reviewing everything. You know, I, I, I read all the information that was available. I read books. I read, you know, uh, other historians' uh, uh, writings. And uh, all of them concluding that, you know, he was this peasant. We were from Genoa. And I always got to a point where I said, this guy was not from Genoa. He was not Italian. And he definitely was not a peasant. You know, and then I would call some historians up and say, listen, you know, I, this doesn't make sense. You know, well, yes, he is, because his last will says so. 
and so uh, I went, you know, I read all the transcriptions I could find of the last will, and it kept not making sense to me. And I decided, well, I'm going to go to Seville and look at the thing in person because, you know, it's a whole different thing about looking at something or looking at a transcription. And so I flew to Seville. I went to the archive of the Indies of Seville, and I asked them to bring me the thing. I looked at it, and as soon as, I, as, soon as they laid it on the table, I knew it was a forgery. And so I didn't have to go much farther than that. Uh, but once I knew that it was a forgery, then it was much easier to prove the, the, the content of it, uh, it doesn't fit, you know, because at that point, I really uh, took the thing more seriously as, as far as this is a forgery. And then I have to uh, document the pieces in, inside on the writing that are actually false or, or that don't apply to Columbus at all. And so once I realized the document was a forgery, then I had to track, figure out where it came from. And it turns out that in, uh, in the late 1500s, when Columbus's grandson died without a, a, a son, a legitimate son to take over his position, all his relatives uh, began, a, began a court case to try to fight for the inheritance. And so this court case lasted from 1578 until 1609. So basically 31 years. And 31 years, there were a lot of people involved fighting each other for the greatest inheritance in the world. You gotta remember that Columbus, by his contract, he had 10% of all the profit from the new world. He was able to get 8% for, uh, he was able to invest in any fleet and get 8% of the profit. And then he still had uh, his salaries, you know, as uh, Admiral and, and Viceroy and those other things. So he had a huge, um, you know, slice of the pie, and all his descendants were fighting each other to get this inheritance. And because there was a, a the next in line was through a female line, the male line was extinct. And so all those machinations that went on for 30 years caused a lot of disarray in the documents. But the worst thing is that two Colombos from Italy came to Spain to try to steal the inheritance. And those Colombos came with forged, forged documents. And because, um, and, and, the, and the necessity to bring forged documents is because Columbus was never from Genoa. You know, if he was from there, they would have brought real documents. So they come to Spain with these forged documents. One guy is rejected, uh, you know, pretty quickly because it was very easy to prove that his, his documents were forgeries. The other guy, hung around for 20 or 30 years. And he's the one who presented this, this false last will of 1498, where Columbus supposedly wrote that he was born in Genoa. Well, when the, the, the tribunal, Spanish tribunal looked at the document, they said, this thing is worth as much as a blank piece of paper. And so, uh, and so any historian that wanted to find out the truth would have done the same legwork I've done. They would have gone to see that not only was the document a forgery because it was never written by Columbus, even though it's signed pretending to be Columbus. How do you know? I mean, when you look at it today, uh, what is the major uh, indication that it's a forgery? All, you know, all this information is in my book, Columbus, the Untold Story. You know, you can go very simply to columbus-book.com, place your order. But it's very simple. When you look at the document, the first word of the document says copy. Okay, it says copy, copy of a last will supposedly by, you know, the, a dead admiral. 
So, so they, they, it's a copy. So it was not written by, it was not written by Columbus, right? Because it's a copy. It's a copy of supposedly of some document. However, the document is signed by Columbus. You see, the guy is dead. They make a copy of a supposed last will of a dead guy, but the dead guy is signed in the document. Uh, that's, that's the first thing. Second one is that the date on the document is actually 1598. But someone put a four over the five, making it 1498. So in 1598, Columbus was already dead for almost 100 years, you know, died in 1506. So the first word of the document is copy. That means that Columbus never wrote it because it's supposedly a copy of, of a last will that he had done. There's no records at all that he ever did a last will in 1498. His last will was done in 1502. Furthermore, information inside the document proves that it is a forgery. Things like asking the prince to, to enforce his last will when the prince was already dead half a year before the date of this last will. So Columbus would never have asked the dead man to enforce his last, to help him enforce his last will. So, you know, just things like that, that you, once you know that thing is a forgery, it's very easy to pick out the sentences that are uh, fraudulent, that are inconsistent with the truth and, and things that Columbus never would have written. And so once I, I went to Seville, like I said, and I saw that the document was a forgery, I was free then to really uh, continue and, and try to answer the puzzle of who Columbus really was and why, this, why there is this whole mystery around his identity and why um, the courts were helping to hide his identity. That is the end of part one of my interview with Manuel Rosa. If you want to find out where Columbus actually came from, because it wasn't Italy, if you want to find out where he actually came from, if you want to find out how he managed to pull off one of the most successful deceptions in the history of deceptions, and if you want to find out the real reason why Christopher Columbus came back from the New World in chains, join me for the next episode. In the meantime, you can buy Manuel Rosa's book, Columbus, The Untold Story, on his website, which is columbus-book.com. That is columbus-book.com. And there's a whole load more information about Manuel Rosa's work. I will leave a link in the description of this podcast. As always, please, please share this podcast with your friends and family and give it a great review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast. Part two of this interview is going to be dropping on October the 12th, which is, of course, Columbus Day 2020. Until then, goodbye. It would be amazing if you could make a donation towards the Phoenicians Before Columbus podcast. There's a PayPal link in the description which you can follow, and it's super easy to make either a one-off gift or an ongoing contribution. 